In this parsha, we find ourselves 17 years after Yaakov's arrival into the land of Egypt. Yaakov and his family arrived, just 70 souls. But as the last pasuk in Vayigash indicated, they were prosperous and successful in Egypt. The family grew, their success blossomed, and they took root. Our parsha opens with Yaakov sensing his death and his final conversation with Yosef. He makes Yosef swear that he will bury him, he'll bury Yaakov, his father, back in the land of Eretz Yisrael, despite the roots that they've taken in Egypt, despite their strong position there. Yaakov says, I don't want to be buried here. Promise me, swear to me, you will take me back to Eretz Yisrael, to the family burial plot. You will bury me in Eretz Hamachpelah. By making this request, Yaakov has brought up the elephant in the living room, as it were. That is, the fact that Rachel, not only his beloved wife, but more importantly for our purposes, Yosef's mother, is the only one of the Avos and Imahos, the patriarchs and matriarchs, who is not buried in Mara Samach and instead was merely buried on the side of the road. Interestingly, this elephant in the living room is in fact brought up explicitly by Yaakov, and seemingly out of nowhere, not directly connected to any previous mention in the text, Yaakov says, Says Yaakov, on my way from Padan, Rachel died on me, right in the land of Canaan on the road, while I was still about Kivras Aretz, Lovo, Ephrasa, I was a certain distance away from Ephrat, I buried her there on the road, Ephrati, Beit Lechem on the road to Ephrat, which is the area of Beit Lechem. So on the one hand, yes, we see Yaakov bringing up this awkward fact. On the other hand, Psukim, both before and after, don't really provide any further elaboration or context. Why would Yaakov bring this up? What exactly was he hoping to accomplish? We can speculate, but the Torah text itself is silent. It's this silence, this lacuna in the text, not surprisingly, which allows and inspires numerous interpretations among the classical Mepharshim. One approach, which is mentioned briefly by the Ibn Ezra, and is elaborated upon by the Ramban, in what the Ramban refers to as the Pshat, what he thinks is the simplest explanation, is that despite the lack of specificity and elaboration, this was really Yaakov's way of apologizing for not giving Rachel the proper burial that he knows Yosef would have wanted for his mother. And by so apologizing, he's also therefore pleading with Yosef not to hold it against him, not to be angry with him for his request, and pleased to bury Yaakov in Maras Hamachpelah. After all, and here's where the Ramban in particular elaborates, she died suddenly. And the way the Ramban explains why it's important to know that she died suddenly is because Yaakov was saying it was simply impractical it was impossible, given the circumstances, for her to be buried in Maras HaMachpelah. And here is a fascinating footnote. When the Ramban originally analyzed this story, not only in Vayechi, now, where Yaakov is retrospectively talking to Yosef about it, but in fact, numerous partios earlier, when Rachel actually died, when Ramban wrote his commentary on that story, he was living in Spain, where he was from, and he assumed that in fact, this was very far away, a long distance from Hebron. However, 
as many of you probably know, towards the end of his life, the Ramban was successful, heroically successful, in making Aliyah. He wrote an updated version of his commentary once he was able to see with his own eyes the actual topography, the actual geography, the land of Eretz Yisrael, and he realized that this area of Beit Lechem is not actually that far away from Hebron. So why couldn't Yaakov have made the journey? And therefore he updates his parish and he explains that because he had so many family members and so much possession, so many possessions, so many animals, it would have taken him a good deal of time even to go a relatively short distance. And given the fact that it was so unexpected, she died suddenly, he didn't have what was at the time the most sophisticated medical or technological treatments that would have been able to prepare the body for a delayed burial. Says Ramban, in those days they used embalmers in order to maintain the body for some length of time in order to be able to be buried in a proper state. But given the fact that she died suddenly, he wasn't prepared, she wasn't old, he didn't have any of that, and therefore he was worried that given how big his entourage was, if he would finally get to Hebron, it would have taken too much time and Without being too explicit, Ramban basically says her body would have decayed in a way that would be so unbecoming and so embarrassing that it made more sense. It was actually more respectful to Rachel to bury her immediately and on the spot. Sforno actually also says this is an apology, but not a practical excuse, a psychological excuse. Mesa alai Rachel. I was so overcome with grief. I had such a loving relationship with Rachel. I could not collect myself enough in order to be able to bring her to burial. Rashi, however, gives a third interpretation. He explains and he acknowledges the awkwardness of the request, and he also explicitly, Rashi does, says that Yaakov said, I know, Yosef, I know you're upset at me that I didn't give proper respect to your mother. However, Rashi explains, based on a medrash, that says that this was all divinely ordained. It's not a practical excuse, I couldn't do it. It's not an emotional excuse, I was overwhelmed. In fact, it was divinely ordained and commanded from Hashem that I not bring her to Hebron, that I leave her there on that spot. Why? So that one day in the future, she'd be able to see and help her children when they're exiled after the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. They will walk past her grave and on their way out of Eretz Yisrael. Her voice will give them comfort. As the Pesukim very famously say in the Nevi Yirmiyahu, Kol Nishma Rachel Mevakal Baneha She'll give them strength and chizuk. And that will help them in their difficult gullus. Ramban, in an additional interpretation, agrees with this and also quotes this medrash and he anchors it in the text. He points out that's why there's the double language of baderech. The second baderech being not just that she died baderech, but that this is the derech, the way, the journey, the path that the Jewish people will take on their way out of Eretz Yisrael during the Churban and the Mama Rachel will give them chizuk then. As Yaakov Avinu realizes that the end is near, he calls his children to his bedside and he instructs them, Come together, assemble together, and I will tell you what will happen to you in the end of days. Yaakov then reiterates this message. He Gather together, come listen to your father. The Medrash is intrigued by the apparent redundancy of Yaakov's invitation. After all, first he says, Hey Asvu, and then immediately thereafter he repeats, He Kavtsu, both of which mean essentially the same thing gather or assemble. The Medrash therefore assumes that there must be an additional, deeper message embedded in Yaakov's invitation. Among the various suggestions offered by the Medrash, the final opinion 
is that Tziva Osan al Hamachlokes. Yaakov instructed them to avoid machlokes, bitter, needless infighting, and he reminded them, Kulchon Asifa Achas, you shall all be one group. It's no secret, and it certainly was no secret to Yaakov, that the relationship between the brothers had often been strained, to put it mildly. Now, shortly before his death, Yaakov calls his children together and speaks to them as a loving father, saying, Please, Kinderlach, no more fighting, come together and unite. Of course, Yaakov wasn't just talking as a father and wasn't just speaking to his children. He was also talking as a forefather to all of his descendants. And his message was eternally relevant. Avoid the self-destruction that inevitably comes with Machlokas. And yet, given this backdrop and the understanding of why Yaakov called his children to his deathbed, the content of what he told them, the actual blessings, seems to belie that very goal. After all, if the purpose was to increase Achdos and decrease antipathy, then wouldn't it have been wouldn't it have made more sense to give the very same blessing to all of the children, or perhaps one general bracha to the entire group? Instead, not only did Yaakov give each of the bracha brothers a different bracha, blessing, but some of them got what appeared to be much more positive and complementary brachas than others received. Rather than inspiring harmony and brotherly love, it appears as if the blessings, the brachos, will create Jealousy and more enmity. Why did Yaakov do this? And how does this further the goal of Siva Osan al Hamachlokas? Avraham Lichtenstein suggests that perhaps the answer to this question lies in the Torah's summary statement. After Yaakov finished all of the brachos, Vayavarach Osam, and he blessed them, Ish Asher Kiverchaso, Beirach Osam, each according to his blessing. He blessed them. This pasuk is also confusing in that it not only is redundant, but it shifts between plural, osam, and singular, kiver chaso. The Orachayim HaKadosh explains that the phrase, ish asher kiver chaso berach osam, each according to his blessing, means, harauy lo kefi bechinas neshmasa u kefi maasav, that the brachos were perfectly calibrated and consistent with the recipient's innermost, true, spiritual characteristics and unique talents and abilities. The Rechaim explains that Yaakov didn't give the same bracha to all of his children because a true blessing is one which enables a person to actualize his or her unique talents. And therefore, by definition, each of the children had to receive a different bracha, each suited for his respective talents and personalities. Despite this highly individualized approach that Yaakov took to the brachos, the Pasuk nevertheless concludes Beirach Osam in the plural to highlight the mutual interdependence of the brachos and the ultimate unity of purpose embodied by the brachos as a whole. The Archaim explains that because the brothers are guided by a common goal, because they are on the same team, When any one of them succeeds, in reality, the entire family benefits. Each brother has an area of expertise, and the Jewish people needs the collective talents 
of all of the Shvatim. The greatest success for the collective group comes when each constituent part succeeds in their area of unique focus. Adkan, the words of the Orachayim. In light of this interpretation, Vlichtenstein then explained that we can now gain a deeper understanding of the achdos that Yaakov was striving for when he gathered all of the brothers together around his deathbed. Yaakov gave them different brachos because he recognized and he embraced their differences. The achdos of the brothers was not unanimity, but rather a diversity of personality with a unity of purpose. It's where the distinctive parts work together for the good of the whole, each contributing something unique rather than merely duplicating the contribution of others. Yaakov's final blessing to his children has been a difficult and often elusive message for his descendants to embrace. Throughout the generations, most notably in the time of the second Chorban, the Jewish people have continued to suffer and be plagued by sinaschinam, divisiveness, and machlokas. And as hard as it is, it's equally important that we do not stop striving for this goal. Even while we fall short, we cannot give up on the goal. If we truly internalize the fact that we are all kulchan, asifa achas, in the words of the Medrash, then we can begin to appreciate and not demonize each other's differences. And in turn, then, and only then, will will we be worthy heirs to all of Yaakov's brachos. As Yaakov senses his life coming to an end, he summons his beloved son Yosef and begs and pleads with him that he should bury him in the Mara Samach Don't bury me here in Egypt, but rather, let me lie down with my forefathers. Please transport me from the land of Egypt. Bury me in their grave, obviously alluding to Maras HaMachpela. Yosef responds, Yomer Anochi Kidvarecha. The Medrash, in a famous passage here in Medrash Rabbah, which is also cited in brief by Rashi, is very sensitive to the fact that this request is not only in the affirmative, please bring me to the burial of my forefathers, bring me to Eretz Yisrael, bring me to Mars Machpelah, but it is introduced with the words, Alna Tikbareni B'Mitzrayim. Please don't bury me in the land of Egypt. The Chazal are bothered by the necessity of this and the emphasis on the not burying me in Mitzrayim. Why is that not only mentioned, but the introductory uh, statement that Yaakov made? it certainly would have been sufficient to just say, please bury me in the Marasa Machpelah. And because of this, Chazal see that a significant component of Yaakov's desire wasn't just to be buried with his forefathers, but to be specifically not buried in the land of Egypt. And of course, this begs the question, we understand why he would want to be buried in the family plot, but what is so terrible specifically about being buried in the land of Mitzrayim? So to this, the Medrash actually suggests four answers, three of which are briefly summarized by Rashi. The first answer that the Medrash gives 
is that Yaakov understood with Ruach HaKodesh that eventually the Jewish people will go out of the land of Egypt, but it will be preceded by the ten plagues, one of which will be the plague of Kinim, of lice, which come up from the ground and then emerge to torment the Egyptians. And says the Medrash, Yaakov perceived through his divine inspiration, his prophecy, that not only would this happen, but yiyu marchishos betoh gufi, it'll be very painful if I'm buried still in the land of Egypt, and therefore please, for my own sake, in that sense, please spare me that indignity, spare me that pain. Second opinion mentioned in the Medrash is fascinating. Shloyasu oso avodos kochavim. Yaakov is worried that if he's buried in the land of Egypt, the Egyptians will turn his grave into a shrine and worship it as a form of Avodah Why would they do that? So Chazal explained that even though Yosef had prophesied that the seven years of plenty would be followed by seven years of famine, Yaakov, who came down to Egypt in the second year of the famine, in his merit, in his chus, the famine actually stopped in that second year. That and other miraculous occurrences associated with Yaakov's appearance on the scene in Egypt had given the Egyptians great reason to have tremendous respect and even awe and reverence for Yaakov. And he was worried, given their culture, that they would have turned his grave and his dead body into an Avodah Of course, you might say, you know, why should that matter? That's their sin. That's their deficiency. Why should it matter to Yaakov? So the Medrash tells us that we have a principle, Shekeshem shenifran min ha'oved, kach nifran min ha'ne'evad. That when it comes to Avodah it seems in particular, it's such a severe sin that not only is the person who worships considered culpable, obviously, but even someone who's responsible for that which was worshipped, if you provide that in any way, you are in some way also culpable. In this case, Yaakov said, if I allow myself to be buried here and they turn me into an Avodah even I will be punished. So unlike the Kinim, which would be incidental in a physical, so to speak, pain, here Yaakov is saying, by me allowing myself to be buried here, I will deliberately be setting them up for failure and I will be punished and held responsible. Please help me avoid that. Don't bury me in Egypt. The third opinion that the Medrash quotes, the one which is actually not at all referenced in this Rashi, Tavaracher Yaakov Amar Shaloyiftu be Hamitzrim. Rather, he says, completely different perspective. If I'm buried here, they may or may not worship me. That was the first opinion that we just saw, previous opinion. But rather, they'll treat me with great respect. Right? After all, I'm somebody they have respect for. I'm your father. And if they will respect me and show great reverence and respect uh, to my grave, Hashem may reward them for that kavod that they show me, and that will spare them perhaps the punishment that I know they'll deserve based on what they're going to do to you. And therefore, again, with this prophetic foresight, Yaakov says, don't bury me in Mitzrayim because I'm worried about these unintended consequences. And this being a completely different one than the ones we've seen previously, here Yaakov's worried that Dafka, they'll do the appropriate thing, respect him, treat his grave with respect, but not go too far, not become a Vodazara, and yet still, he wants to avoid that because he doesn't want to be the source of blessing. The previous answer is he didn't want to be the source of punishment for the uh, Egyptians or for himself. Here he doesn't want to be the source of blessing for the Egyptians. And last but not least, the Medrash here goes on in a great 
great elaboration, something that is only very briefly mentioned in Rashi, about the fact that Yaakov wanted to be buried, uh, and all of the Avos, specifically out, out not, not only not in Mitzrayim, but specifically in Eretz Yisrael, because there's a tradition that, at least in the first version of the Medrash, that it's Dafka people who are buried in Eretz Yisrael, that they will merit Tchiyar uh, the resurrection of the dead. The Medrash immediately rejects that as being too extreme. What about all the tzaddikim who've lived over the centuries outside of Israel? So the Medrash famously says that anyone who lived and is buried in Eretz Yisrael will emerge directly from the grave, and anyone who is buried in anywhere in the diaspora in Chutzlaretz will somehow have to tunnel their way all the way from wherever that is to the land of Israel, and only then will emerge and resurrected. And that process, that kind of roller coaster, is quite painful. But the schus of emerging and being buried near Israel is a schus that Yaakov wanted for himself, and we know to this day many people aspire to. The biggest section in our parsha is, of course, Yaakov's brachos to the Shvatim, to his children. There is much commentary on the various brachos, but perhaps the biggest question is that a number of the brachos don't really seem like brachos at all. Ruvain, Shimon, Levi. I mean, really, look at the psukim. It's more of a criticism and a rebuke than a blessing. What's going on? Talking about their anger, their mistakes. This is not the kind of bracha we would expect or any of us would probably want. What's going on? Perhaps we can explain this based on an insight of the famed Mashkiach Rav Yeruchim Levavitz. He mentions this idea in his famous Musr Sefer, Das Chachma Umusr, and his legendary student, Shlomo Volbi, elaborates on his insight, both in the Alei Shor, as well as in his Shiurim on Chumash. And if you put those various sources together, I think a powerful message emerges, one that is not only an insight into our Parsha, but is incredibly insightful and tremendous advice and wisdom for all of us, for ourselves, and especially for our children grandchildren, and when relevant, if we have students as well. In order to answer the question we asked, Rav Yeruchim Levavitz actually focuses on a slightly different question. Earlier in the section, when Yosef is trying to convince Yaakov to give the blessings to his children, to Ephraim and Menashe, in the order that they were born. As we know, Yaakov is clearly about to give the bracha of the firstborn to the second son, to Ephraim, and Yosef says to him, no, Abba, really, you should give it to the older brother. He is the firstborn, he is older, he is the one who deserves it. Give it to Menashe, don't give the firstborn bracha to Ephraim, give it to the true firstborn, Menashe. And Yaakov responds and says, Yadati bani yadati yigdal. I know, don't worry, Menashe will grow into a great nation, he'll be powerful. Ulam achiv hakatan yigdal mimenu. But his younger brother, he's going to be even greater. And the question is, and this is what bothers Rav Yerucham Levavitz, is how does Yaakov's reply actually answer Yosef's question? In fact, that's exactly what Yosef is asking Yaakov to change. Yaakov is saying, why make Ephraim greater? And Yaakov responds, Echav gadol mimenu, that Ephraim's going to be better. Yes, because he's going to get this special bracha of Yaakov, and he's going to be supercharged. It's like going on steroids. It'll be amazing for him. And that's exactly what Yosef is saying. Please, Abba, Switch the brachos. Give that super-duper double bracha to Menashe. To which Yaakov responds, but Ephraim is going to be greater. 
Yes, because you're giving him this bracha. If you give the better bracha, the double bracha, the firstborn bracha, if you give that to Menashe, who is the firstborn, then he'll be greater. Yaakov seems to just be repeating the problem and not presenting an answer. To explain this, Rav Yeruchim says as follows. We have to understand a fundamental principle about how brachos work, and more importantly, an insight into human nature. A true and lasting bracha can only be something that corresponds to the person's personality and authentic character traits. A blessing is when those natural traits fully develop, they blossom, and then they lead to great accomplishment. But a bracha only works if it is corresponding to that person's authentic and true nature. If it is grafted on in some artificial way, and it doesn't correspond at all to who they really are, it either won't take at all, or at best, it will last and be successful a little bit for a short time. But then it will wither and fall away because it doesn't really correspond to who that person is. In order for it to be real and lasting, it has to be authentically corresponding to who the person is. That's why, says Rabbi Rucham, Yaakov was telling Yosef, it has to be this way. Ephraim and Menashe are different people. They're both wonderful, but they have different skill sets, different abilities. Blessing Menashe with the, bless- with the bracha of the firstborn is actually not going to help, because it's not matim for him. When Yaakov says, Echav hakatan menu, he's not saying because of the bracha. He's saying he has natural abilities which will flower and blossom from this bracha in a way that his older brother simply won't. In the incredible, powerful words of Rabbi Yeruchim, he says, Yaakov lohaya yachol l'shanos b'seder ha-brachos klal. Yaakov couldn't, even if he wanted to, Yaakov couldn't change the brachos. Lohaya yachol l'varech l'kalechad v'echad ela because a person, whether it's Yaakov or anyone else, you can only give a bracha, you can only give a bracha that will actually work if it is if it goes and corresponds to the person's strengths and his authentic nature and personality. That is why, given Yaakov's insight as a grandfather and as a Navi, he understood that Ephraim needed that bracha and Menashe needed that bracha. They both got the bracha that was best for them. In light of this, Ravolbi develops this idea and explains the question we asked. Why would the brachos to the Shvatim include things like Reuven, Shimon, and Levi, which are more critique than they are blessing? And the answer seems to be as follows. The main purpose of the brachos was for Yaakov to tell each of his children what their strengths and weaknesses were. Yaakov told them what made each of them tick, what made each of them unique, so that they could use that awareness, that insight, so that they can be in touch with their strengths, use those, develop them, but also be in touch with their weaknesses and correct and improve those. I have no doubt it was not easy for Ruvain, Shimon, or Levi to hear what Yaakov said, but the truth is it was the greatest bracha they could receive. First of all, realizing that their father truly knew them and understood them. What greater bracha can there be than to be truly seen for who you are? But in addition, by understanding who you are, that is the only way you can actually use your skills and improve the things that need to be improved. If you never are aware of those, how can you do that? It also explains very beautifully in the end, perhaps this is what the Pasuk means at the conclusion of all the brachos. Yes, Yaakov blessed them, 
According to their blessing, he blessed them. It seems very redundant. But the answer is it's not redundant. Each one according to their natural abilities. He gave them a blessing that they should use those abilities to accomplish great things. Right before he dies, Yaakov wants to reveal the secret of the end of days to his children, but Hashem prevents him from doing that and removes the divine presence from Yaakov. Yaakov, aware that Hashem has removed his presence, is fearful that perhaps there's something wrong with his children. Maybe his children are not as pure and as religious as he thought. However, his children reassure him by declaring in unison, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. And Chazal tell us that in response to this declaration of faith by the sons, Yaakov responds, Baruch Shem Kavod May the name of God be and His kingdom be everlasting and honorable forever and ever. This statement, Baruch Shem Kavod in Hebrew, is translated in Aramaic as the familiar refrain, Yehesh Me Mevorach May God's name be blessed and forever and ever and ever. Yehesh Me and Baruch Shem are in fact the exact same thing, one in Hebrew and in Aramaic. And therefore, in a sense, we have a reference or a hint to the Kaddish, Yeheshme Rabbah, actually in our Parsha. In fact, even though there is a larger body of the Kaddish, as we all know, but really the essence is that Yeheshme Rabbah. What comes before it is really just an introduction which crescendos with the statement Yeheshme Rabbah, may God's name be blessed and honored forever and ever. And then what comes after Yeheshme Rabbah is simply our slowly but surely, so to speak, uh, letting the air out of the balloon, if you will, letting you know, coming down, so to speak, from the high of Yehoshme Rabbah. But really, the essence is Yehoshme uh, Rabbah. Uh, it's interesting that uh, various sources trace the re- the relevance or the incorporation is a better way of saying it. The incorporation of Kaddish as part of our regular tefillah, uh, most likely to the period at the end of the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, and not only because we didn't have the Karbanot but also because the depression, the natural depression of seeing the Beis HaMikdash destroyed, the people exiled, was a tremendous challenge to their faith. And therefore the rabbis instituted as a testament and a statement of faith, we nevertheless, despite our difficult circumstances, began publicly declaring God's name is great forever and ever, Yehoshmei Rabbah. So that's how it became part of the regular tefillah. What's really fascinating and mysterious is how this became known as a mourner's prayer. If you look at Kaddish, there's nothing about death or mourning in the actual words. And many, many sources, including uh, Ashkenazic Rishonim, which are then brought down by the Beis Yosef, they all quote this very obscure and clearly very mystical and esoteric medrash that tells us kind of a spooky story about the great Rebbe Akiva, that he sees a man who looks all burnt, like all charcoal black, Turns out he's kind of a ghost. He comes from the afterlife and he looks to be in terrible distress and Rabbi Kiva asks him why he looks this bad. Why is he being so badly punished? And the man confesses whatever his sins were in his lifetime and then Rabbi Kiva says to him, well, isn't there some way you could be forgiven? You could get kapara, you could get atonement? And in fact, this ghost, this man says to Rabbi Kiva, I heard that if I would have had a son who would say Baruchu, who would be the Chazan in Shul, or who could lead the community in Kaddish, Yehoshimei Rabbah, that would have been a merit. So, however the story goes for that particular man and that particular ghost, spooky and, uh, <laughs> to, to say the least, uh, nevertheless, this has become brought down through the various halachic sources, uh, as surprising as that may for some to hear, this is really the basis, the earliest source, which connects the idea of children in particular, saying Kaddish, 
after the loss of a loved one, particularly a parent, and how that is considered a merit for the parent. The fact that a parent has left over a child who is willing to get up and publicly declare, Yehei Shmei Rabbah, God is great, God is amazing, His honor should continue, even though they've just suffered a loss, a traumatic loss of a parent, that itself is not only a great testament to who the child is, but it is a merit to the neshama of the parent that they raised such a child. That's really the metaphysical mechanics as best as I, a non-Kabbalist, could explain and understand how Kaddish works. The question, therefore, a very fascinating question, which has occupied the minds of many poskim over the last 300 years is, is this something that's reserved only for sons, as the story in the Medrash is specifically referring to a son, or is it something that would equally apply to daughters? As far as I'm aware, the earliest source on the question is a responsa, a question and answer that was delivered by the Chavos Yair of Yara Bachrach, who was a great gadol who lived in the 17th century. And he had this description of a situation in which a man was about to die. He asked the question, he only had one daughter. He wanted to know if he sponsored a special minion. And therefore his daughter would be at the minion. And then after davening, his daughter could say Kaddish. Outside of shul, outside of the regular course of davening. And the Chabas Yara says, listen, logically, it totally makes sense. The ability for a daughter to bring a zechus and a kapara for the neshama of the parent is just as powerful and equal to that of a son. Nevertheless, he says, he rules against it. And the reason is because he's worried about the zilzul of minhagim. It had been hundreds of years that only sons were saying Kaddish, and he's worried that if all of a sudden that practice changed, it would shake the foundations of the notion of tradition, of Masorah, of minhag. And it would be like taking the brick out of the basis of the wall. If you pull that one brick out, the whole wall of tradition and minhag might come tumbling down because of that meta-halachic fear, therefore he ruled against. This idea is brought down in other chuvos in the next 200 years or so, where this is a very common psak, with additional reasons that people are worried that if you allow a woman to say Kaddish, perhaps people will get confused and think that women can count towards the minion uh, or other such uh, problems. But the premise that theoretically it should make sense for a woman to say Kaddish that seems to be agreed upon by most poskim, and yet because of these other side or meta-halachic concerns, they ruled in the negative. Nevertheless, we do find a minority view, even from a few hundred years ago, who did allow a daughter to say Kaddish in a private ceremony, in a private uh, shul or gathering, a private house or gathering, not in the shul, not in the regular davening. In more recent times, we have found both testimony and actual rulings that have been more permissible in even allowing women to say Kaddish uh, in shul. We have oral traditions from a number of gedolim. Rav Salvechik mentioned this. Rav Moshe Feinstein mentioned this. Even the Chavetz Chaim is reported to have said that in Lithuania, 100 plus years ago, it was very common for women to come in the back of shul and to say Kaddish at the end of davening. Moreover, in recent years, a number of poskim have definitively ruled that it is permissible for women to say Kaddish, specifically Rav Yosef Eliyahu Henkin, who said they should say it from the women's section, but women can say Kaddish. Others have ruled against, they're worried this will lead to part of a feminist rebellion in orthodoxy. Barbaran Soloveitchik very forcefully ruled that we should permit it. Wherever we can allow, we must.